Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers with a story today of smog and, and one of the most unhealthy days in New York City history. Today we're bringing you this dramatic story courtesy of another show we think you'll love. History This Week from the History Channel. History This Week documents great moments in time, turning back the clock to explore the stories of people and places that have shaped the world. The following presentation explores the events of November 24, 1966, and a festive Thanksgiving tradition in New York City that was marred by environmental catastrophe. Now, we'll be back with a new show next week, but until then, enjoy this tale of the city from History This Week and host Sally Helm. History This Week, November 24th, 1966. I'm Sally Helm. It's Thanksgiving Day in New York City, and an awkward, top-heavy Superman balloon is floating down Broadway. He's first up in the annual Macy's Day Parade. There are a million people watching in the streets. Moms in hats and mittens, kids in checkered coats. There are marching bands, ballerinas, people waving pom-poms in front of a castle on the Toyland float. On the flower float is the famous Nina Simone. She sings the song, Blue Skies. But the skies are not blue in New York City today. They're gray. The clouds look dirty, and after they leave the parade, the ballerinas and the marching band musicians and the pom-pom wavers, some of them might feel a tickle in their throat. Their eyes might be stinging. They might even find it hard to breathe. Because while the Macy's Day Parade is happening in Midtown Manhattan, the city's air laboratory up in Harlem is recording extremely high levels of pollution. New Yorkers have dealt with pollution before, but nothing like this. Over this Thanksgiving weekend, the smog will turn deadly. By the time all is said and done, close to 200 people will die. The killer smog of 1966 forces New Yorkers and people all around the country to finally pay attention to the air pollution that they were actually breathing all the time. It's hard to talk about smog and smoke and air pollution dangers without reflecting on humans' inability to take chronic threats seriously. There seems to be something about the modern mind that longs for this kind of apocalyptic vision, the big disaster, rather than the toll that your lungs, your eyes, your body suffers each and every day. Today, the apocalyptic vision comes true. How did New York City's killer Thanksgiving smog help usher in a new era of environmental protection for the whole country? And how are we still looking at environmental disasters all wrong? Professor Frank Eucheter grew up in Germany, but in the 1990s, he came briefly to live in the United States and he made it out to LA my wonderful hometown, and also a notoriously smoggy city. 
Eukener has read all about the worst years of smog in the 1950s. You couldn't stand at a street corner in Los Angeles in the early 50s and not have watering eyes. He told us by the time he was there in the early 1990s, things were much better. No watering eyes. But still, he got curious about air pollution. He began to look into the history of smoke and also its modern cousin, smog. What is smog? (laughs) This is a term coined by a Londoner. Uh, Smog is a combination of smoke and fog, which describes the situation in London uh, very nicely. This is 1904, when the uh, treasurer of the Coal Smoke Abatement Society in London, England, sends a Christmas Day letter to the Times of London. And with that, this coal smoke abatement treasurer makes up this word that we still use today. Coal smoke is a problem at this time in London, and in other cities too. The world is industrializing rapidly, factories everywhere, and a lot of those factories run on coal combustion. So if you are living in a city that is becoming a center of industry... It was dirty in a way that is barely speakable nowadays because the smoke, it was everywhere in the big cities. It intruded into private quarters. It was literally in the air everywhere. You can actually see it from outside that there was a kind of dark cloud over the city. And people were very much against it, but not so much for health reasons. Mostly due to the fact that the early 20th century city was unhealthy on so many fronts, this was ranked as a minor issue. You got to deal with your sewer problems before you deal with your smoke problems. But still, people hated the way that smoke just made everything so dirty and ugly and gross. It's mostly a problem of cleanliness. It's, by extension, a problem of property values. It's not good for real estate values. That's what people are upset about how this would affect their bottom line. Meanwhile, the particulates that they're breathing in are very bad for their lungs. You may have seen an image of the black lungs of a city dweller compared to the nice pink lungs of someone who grew up in the country. That's beginning to happen for the first time. But doctors and epidemiologists won't be aware of this kind of damage for years. Over the last three decades, we have learned a great deal about how dangerous fine dust actually is to the lungs. And we nowadays know that fine dust is actually among the top 10 killers in the world. Um, It's a bit of an irony of history that we only became aware of how dangerous this is at a time where it was mostly gone in the Western world. But retrospectively, we must say this was a matter of life and death. So no one is doing all that much about air pollution or smog because it's not seen as a deadly problem. But there is a very particular set of circumstances in which smog can be lethal. Smog becomes a killer, particularly when weather conditions impede dispersal of pollutants. And that's usually the result of an inversion layer. An inversion layer. Normally, air is warmer close to the Earth, and it gets colder as you go up. You may have experienced that if you've ever climbed a mountain. You may also know the concept that heat rises. So typically, warm air is rising up from the Earth, getting colder as it goes up, and dispersing and flowing and moving around. But sometimes, this whole situation gets reversed. Warm air slips on top of cold air. The cold air doesn't rise, so it's trapped. 
the warm air acts like a lid. That basically traps pollutants in the place and near the place where they're produced and causes them to accumulate in the atmosphere. When this happens, pollutants build up and smog can become deadly. In the U.S., the first major smog event happens in July of 1943. This is Los Angeles. Our Lady, the Queen of the Angels, as the Spaniards named her, the fastest-growing city in the nation. L.A. up until the 40s had been known for its clean air. If you had tuberculosis, you went to L.A. to breathe those California breezes and clear out your lungs. But now... 1943 is when the first L.A. smog episode comes. You had watering eyes, you had breathing problems. Visibility is terrible. The air smells like bleach. And it all comes on suddenly, on July 26th. Nobody really knows what it is. What is the pollutant? Where does it come from? It's World War II, so people actually think it might be a Japanese gas attack. And this smog is different from London smog. It's not really about smoke. It's photochemical smog, where pollutants from car exhaust and factory production cause a chemical reaction in the atmosphere. That creates this particular L.A. smog. Plus, L.A. is prone to inversions because of its topography. It's bordered by mountains. But people won't figure all this out for almost a decade. The science just isn't there yet. Thankfully, in 1943... No one in L.A. dies from the smog. But five years later, in 1948... Denora, Pennsylvania was the biggest air pollution disaster in the United States until New York City in 66. This is an industrial community around a river valley. Smog settles down on the industrial town of Denora, Pennsylvania and brings with it mysterious death. Residents have difficulty in breathing the murky air. Rain brings relief. But an epidemic of pneumonia is feared in the wake of Donora's deadly plague of smog. The valley where Donora sits is ripe for inversions. And there are steel mills and zinc plants in the area spewing off pollutants. On Halloween in 1948, pollutants get so concentrated that the local fire brigade has to go door-to-door giving people oxygen. 20 people die. It's the deadliest toll per capita of any smog episode before or since. And this gets national attention. These major events to at least pollution gets gets noticed. What happens in Denora is that the federal medical authority is asked to investigate well what happened here. The investigators link the pollution and deaths to noxious fumes coming from the local factories. There are a few lawsuits. But that's about it. There is no legislation, no warning system. This is a factory town. The factory is calling the shots. Of course, the factory makes sure that next time there is an inversion, they're a bit more careful. You know, factories don't want to kill their neighbors. But there are no real consequences for the factories. There's also very little in the way of a national or a global effort to prevent disasters like this from happening again. And one does happen again in London, which, remember, had invented the term smog in 1904. But since that era, they had kind of gotten off scot-free. The best guess is maybe they were just lucky for a few decades, but then this returns in late 1952. 
this will be the deadliest smog ever. It also comes from an inversion that traps pollutants released by factories and by city residents. Epidemiologist Devra Davis wrote that in London, quote, smoke ran like tap water from a million chimneys. In the London smog of 1952, 4,000 people died within a few days. The death toll and the filth rose together. The killer smog lasts for months. Thousands of people die, though it takes a while to untangle just how many. If people die from smog, it's not like they die immediately. There is no kind of imminent cause that they can identify, but it's a burden on the respiratory system. They may get a heart attack, they may get breathing problems, emphysema. The best estimates that we have suggest that 12,000 people died prematurely during that smog episode in 1952. And in this case, there is some regulation. Four years after this killer smog, Britain passes a big law about clean air. Though Dr. Euchter says activism had been happening even before the big smog. So the reality is that this flashy moment of action after a disaster was just one piece of a larger puzzle. Which brings us to New York and the United States' last killer smog. Because of a slow drip of activism and reform and scientific progress, New York isn't totally unprepared for something like this. By 1966, meteorologists can sort of predict inversions, and there are some regional pollution monitoring systems. In fact, right before this smog event happens, the U.S. Senate Committee on Public Works puts out this video. Our atmosphere contains a variety of chemical compounds released from a great number of diverse sources of air pollution. Many of these compounds are toxic, corrosive, and irritating. Under the influence of sunlight, warm temperatures, and water vapor, the polluting substances react with each other in the air to produce new compounds, more destructive and irritating than their original components. Photochemical smog... So officials are beginning to understand what they're up against. But in New York City, the infrastructure still isn't ready for the disaster that is about to strike. There's a city department of air pollution control, but they only control things up to the city limits. There's an interstate sanitation commission, but they're mostly focusing on water. So any kind of framework that you need for a comprehensive drive against pollution, it's just not there. New York City does have a smog alert system and a way to monitor and measure pollution. There's one lab in an old courthouse in Harlem And a few days before Thanksgiving, it starts recording elevated levels of air pollution. It's a combination of the everyday pollution in New York City. There's the garbage, there is the car traffic, there's the factories, there is the power plants. Um, And there is a weather situation that traps these pollutions close to the ground. An inversion. All this combines to create a deadly smog bubble over New York City. The day before, a million people are about to flood the streets. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. 
but there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. One of the first people to be notified about the high air pollution readings in New York is a man named Austin Heller. He's the city commissioner of air pollution control, and he has to decide whether to declare a smog alert. There is a such threshold that people look at very closely, but it's a decision that is taken cautiously. Shutting down a city is no small measure. Plus, it's Thanksgiving. The Macy's Day Parade is a national spectacle. People are expecting the show to go on. As an added complication, the mayor of New York City is not in town. He's vacationing in, I think, Bermuda. So he's uh, far away. And the city administration is pondering this big decision. Heller talks to the deputy mayor, various medical experts and scientists, and decides the levels are just low enough that the parade can go on as scheduled. They do take some precautions. Heller spends Wednesday on the phone with Con Edison, the city's fuel provider, and gets them to switch temporarily from fuel oil to cleaner natural gas. All the city-owned garbage incinerators get turned off. Garbage incineration is a huge source of pollution. But still, New Yorkers are starting to notice that something is off. It becomes a bodily phenomenon. People can actually feel they breathe it whenever they go outside or even breathe it in their own homes. My only complaint is the air. It's so dirty. I have to wash my children's clothes so many times a day. They never seem to be clean. And house cleaning is absolutely impossible. 
On Thanksgiving Day, a million parade-goers, plus dancers and tuba players and people holding the strings of giant Superman balloons, they all come out for the Macy's Day Parade. And as the day goes by, the air quality gets worse. That night, Commissioner Heller calls inspectors away from their Thanksgiving dinners to go around the city and try to crack down on any pollution violations. And around 1 a.m., the city finally issues a smog alert. Nothing mandatory happens, but it's a warning that is issued. People are encouraged to switch off their garbage incinerators. Some hospitals are reporting increased numbers of patients coming in with asthma and other lung problems. Eye doctors tell people not to wear their contact lenses outside. An allergist says that kids under two should stay at home. The New York Times reports on a site that, in the age of coronavirus, is totally commonplace, but in that moment it was novel. A woman was walking through Midtown Manhattan in a surgical mask. On Saturday, finally, the weather changes. There's a cold front coming that ends this abnormal inversion layer, and finally the dirty air can disperse. In the end, a task force calculates that the death toll from the smog was 168 people. So not nearly as high as the London smog or as deadly per capita as the Donora smog. But this happens in a major U.S. city during a major holiday. It gets a ton of press coverage. And by this point, 1966, the dangers of air pollution are better understood. So it's becoming clear to the public that the current approach to pollution just isn't working. Very much every city, every state defining its own system and often under the control of powerful industries. In New York, there's pretty quick action at the city level. They strengthen the pollution guidelines in the city administrative code, that lab in Harlem gets an upgrade, and the city announces that they plan to open 36 more locations to monitor air quality. They buy a fancy new computer system so that all those labs can communicate with each other. But it's still just local. You need tougher action. You need action that really targets entire regions or the entire nation. President Lyndon Johnson is also under pressure. He sends a message to Congress in which he talks at length about the New York smog of 1966. He says the country needs legislative action. And in 1967, he gets it. He signs the Clean Air Act into law. But it ends up not being that effective. A lot of regulation is still left up to the states, and some of them don't do all that much. A few years later, in a Supreme Court decision, Chief Justice Rehnquist calls state response to the law, quote, disappointing. But in 1970, under the Nixon administration, a new version of the Clean Air Act passes. And it moves pollution protections more fully under the control of the federal government. So it's a shift from a patchwork of local and state regulations towards, let's say, halfway uniform national approach to pollution problems. The Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, is founded in December of the same year. Among other things, it helps implement the requirements of the Clean Air Act. And finally, almost 70 years after the term was coined across the pond, smog in the U.S. starts to significantly decrease. There are a lot of things that led to this big moment of environmental action in 1970. 
But one of them is this flashpoint in 1966, when smog was so visible and deadly. A lot of people watched the Macy's Day Parade on TV, a lot more people read about it, and that helped spur action. What you realize is what captures the public imagination is the disaster, the uh, acute episode, something you can see, something you can respond to directly, and something that you can quantify in precise numbers, something that is very important to the soul of modern people. Dr. Yukata reminded us over and over the story that one big disaster spurs one big law that fixes everything, that just isn't right. After 1970, there are still lots of court battles and wrangling back and forth over these regulations. Scientific progress plays a big role in bringing air pollution down, and that takes time. And the regulation that we've been talking about is mostly in the U.S. There are other cities around the world that continue to have major smog problems up to the present day. Solutions just don't come all at once. There's always this kind of consoling narrative that comes into place with each disaster. Now we will learn from this disaster. No, it's more, disasters are really more like, it opens political opportunities for some time, but the moment passes, well, sooner than you wish. We are forgetful people when it comes to these disasters. And we should be wary about these kind of smooth narratives. There is no silver bullet for any of these pollution problems anymore. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. And for history anytime, anywhere, sign up for a seven-day free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 award-winning documentaries and series from your favorite device, with new videos added every week. To start your free trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. This episode was produced by McKamey Lynn. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts, and we will see you next week. 